welcome to Let's Talk Diabetes, a podcast from Diabetes UK in Northern Ireland. Throughout this series, we'll be chatting everything diabetes with healthcare professionals, people from the Diabetes UK team and people living with diabetes in Northern Ireland. Today, we are welcoming back Mark Davies for the final session of this series on emotional wellbeing. Mark is a consultant clinical psychologist working in Belfast City Hospital and also provides supervision and training to a range of healthcare professionals locally and nationally. I'm your host, Susie Hull, Healthcare Engagement Manager at Diabetes UK in Northern Ireland, and we will be talking today about how healthcare professionals can support people living with diabetes with their emotional well-being during this journey. Mark works directly with emotional well-being and diabetes, but people who are receiving diabetes care come into contact with a range of different healthcare professionals. They're all looking at the condition from physical aspect, so I suppose, Mark, we should maybe start by asking... Why or is it important for healthcare professionals to consider emotional well-being as part of routine care as well as the physical side of diabetes? Hello, Susie. Hello. <laughs> uh, yes, it is important. I think if you ask people with diabetes, type 1, type 2 or any other form of diabetes, whether uh, living with diabetes is an emotional issue in their lives, I would imagine 100% of people would say it is. And for a proportion of those people, maybe 40% research suggests of people with diabetes, that emotional distress will be sufficiently intrusive to begin to have an impact on their ability or willingness to look after their diabetes. And I suppose that's probably something I wanted to ask you was, you've indicated that 40%, there's an emotional aspect for everybody. So there is where does it become a part of a routine care to have a conversation and say, are you okay? Is that an emotional question, an emotional well-being question versus seeing you within diabetes psychology services? There's a spectrum there, I suppose, is what I'm getting at. Is that where, where in that spectrum does yeah, it change? It's, it's, it's a big question, isn't it? So for some people, their emotional distress is entirely understandable and perfectly reasonable uh, nevertheless important to acknowledge and I suppose I would suggest that for those people that issue is best acknowledged within routine diabetes care and it's interesting I've done a lot of training over the years and when I first started doing training I don't know 25 years ago I used to imagine that um, it was my job as a psychologist to hand over psychological ideas and psychological skills to healthcare professionals. And it was a silly thought. I don't know why I had this thought, because having done a lot of training with healthcare professionals, it's clear to me that they already have a huge amount of skill and a huge yeah. amount of knowledge and a huge amount of emotional sensitivity. As a trainer, very often it's my role to kind of point out what they're doing well. Because it's a caring role already. And part of that is just adding in that you're checking in on somebody's mental or emotional well-being as well as their physical needs. Generally speaking, healthcare professionals are caring people. Yeah. They're the people in their families who the rest of the family turn to with a problem. So healthcare professionals are highly skilled and highly sensitive uh, in providing emotional support. If you asked healthcare professionals, are you highly skilled and highly sensitive about providing emotional support? Most of them would say, no, I don't think so. But I can tell you they are. Yeah. So they're well equipped uh, and well skilled to manage, if you like, the understandable everyday emotional distress that goes with living with diabetes. Yeah. And I know that happens day in, day out in diabetes clinics and GP consultations and dietetic yeah. consultations and podiatry consultations, that people's emotional stress is acknowledged within those consultations. And I suppose for those consultations, sorry to disturb you there, I'd change your thought process potentially, but is that just a how are you question? You know, 
for healthcare professionals in that role, in that appointment, in that 10 minute maybe slot? Oh, that's a very interesting is that question. It is a very interesting question for me because one of the things I'm curious about is whether healthcare professionals should be taught to inquire mm-hmm. about somebody's well-being, to ask the question, or whether healthcare professionals should just provide a compassionate, empathic, non-judgmental space and allow the person to talk about their emotions if they want to. So I think over the course of my career, my opinion on that has changed. So whereas I thought maybe 20 years ago, the idea of screening and checking in with people and asking people how you're getting on was, was a good idea, I kind of think differently now. I kind of think that really what healthcare professionals need to do isn't do something extra, an, an extra task, talk, you know, have a conversation yeah. about that. It's really just to provide uh, relationships in which people can talk about their emotions if they want to. Well, because if you make it part of a screening process, as you but it's almost nearly a tick box rather than... It does. It could feel a bit intrusive. Yep. And not everybody likes to be asked questions about their private yep. issues. So I do kind of... I, I, and if you ask healthcare professionals to do that, very often the healthcare professionals say, we're all too busy. We're too yep. busy to do something extra. So I kind of think maybe we shouldn't ask them to do that. Maybe what we should do is just kind of say to them, look, you provide emotional support whether you know it or not whether you acknowledge it or not you do and if you provide these relationships uh, that allows people to talk about this stuff if they want to I think that's the the best way to support healthcare professionals to support people with diabetes and does that then train or does it change your training that you give healthcare you said you've done it for 25 years do you now maybe look and say well your training is around understanding their skills that they already have and that that is actually factor and emotional it's really, it's a really good it's a really good question again and, and you've, you put your, your finger on something really important so the question is should we teach healthcare professionals skills about how to do this or should we teach healthcare professionals the philosophy of providing um supportive the environment. relationships yeah exactly and in the we run a course every year for uh, diabetes healthcare professionals in Ireland, and it's called the Nuston Diabetes Care Counselling and Empowerment Skills course. That's a long title. <laughs> I'm not going into it. But within the course, there's a faculty of trainers. There's eight of us uh, who come from medicine and psychology and nursing and dietetics. And if you ask us that question, are you teaching philosophy or are you teaching skills? We'll all answer it differently. Yeah. And there's no right and wrong answer. But for me, I think if people get the philosophy of patient-centred care, right and if they provide relationships in which people feel safe i think that's the best way of addressing emotional support because it gives people then the opportunity if they wish to discuss that stuff and not everybody wants to rather than going back to maybe what you said 25 years ago teaching people psychological theories and psychological and how to to answer the question and how to answer open questions and closed questions and all those type of things because that's delving into something that somebody maybe doesn't want to talk about when they're sitting at a podiatry appointment or a GP appointment or whatever that's my thought I'm not claiming to be right on this but it is interesting in my career how my thinking has changed on that very astute question Susie if you don't mind me asking I'm going to ask you something that maybe is slightly a big question potentially how do you teach that philosophy We've already said that it's you're generally a caring person when you're working in a healthcare environment. Do you have that in you already as a personality trait nearly? But how do you facilitate that That's learning of a philosophy? So the most important thing to recognise, I think, is that if you provide people with a space to provide emotionally focused, patient-centred care, 
That's what they want to do. That's the type of care they wanted to provide. The thing that makes it difficult for them to provide that care is the environment in which they work. It's the busy outpatient clinic. It's not having the room. It's having not enough time. Yeah. It's having a training which makes them feel like they have to fix something all the time yeah. rather than just support somebody. So that training isn't so much about teaching the philosophy because people already have that philosophy, but it's laying dormant. It's been slightly squashed by the environments they the work in very often. So the teaching is actually about autonomy. Yeah. How can you be the professional you want to be whilst working in an environment that constrains that? Yeah. And it's because we are not going to fix the constraints on spaces, environments and pressures of services. That's not what we are here to do. But how does somebody, how do you empower that within somebody if those pressures exist? Can you do it? Yeah, yeah. I think it's about uh, empowerment is the great, is, is the word. It's how you empower healthcare professionals to be the healthcare professionals they very often want to be. One of the things we do on the course, we try and get uh, teams to come along, not just individuals. It's difficult for an individual to go back into an environment which makes it hard for them. If a team comes along... You get team buy-in. You get a team buy-in, exactly, and they have more power on impacting on their service and how their service is delivered. And I suppose just that learning environment, when you learn with a group of people, you're learning the same thing, you're learning the same way of doing something together... And you work on how you put that into place. If you as an individual go and do that, it is very hard to go back in when you're trying to explain everything that you've learned. We know, as, well. we know as psychologists, the environment in which we live has the biggest impact on our behaviour. Yeah. Um, we uh, psychologists are very interested in, in the internal architecture of people's cognitions and people's emotions. But actually, we know deep down that the thing that impacts us more than anything else is our environment. Yeah. Uh, and one person trying to change the environment is very difficult. But team buy-in, as you quite rightly say, makes that process a little bit easier. You say there that you have... I can't even remember the title that you, you used for the conference we'll, or training. We'll call it the course. Yeah, the course. But you have that... That's maybe a slightly more formal way of doing it. Are there informal ways of supporting an environment like that? I remember early on in my career, before uh, all the hospitals in Belfast joined up into the big Belfast Trust, I, I just worked in Belfast City Hospital. So there was a diabetes team there. And part of my job, it wasn't just about working with people with diabetes. I did feel that part of my job was to influence the culture of the team. Yep. So every so often we'd meet as a team um, and get one of the drug reps to buys a pizza (laughs) and we'd talk about clinical situations or cases that people were really really struggling with and at the beginning I would use kind of clever and insightful psychological words to describe the dynamic was going on and as time went on I noticed that I didn't have to speak as much because the nurses and the doctors were beginning to say oh I know what's going on there that's the thing we talked about last time that was projection or splitting or what so I used to by the end of that meeting I used to just sit there and eat pizza I didn't say very much at all (laughs) you just got to go along for food giving people the language and the understanding of some of the complex dynamics they face can be really helpful that could be really really empowering I remember one of the doctors Welby Henry many people listening might remember Welby as a doctor and he would say I know these things I just didn't know the name for them he used to say sometimes it's a I know it but I didn't know that I know it exactly and it is, it's back to that sometimes it needs pointed out maybe for sometimes that just then. providing a space yeah just providing a space and a vocabulary to allow people to articulate what's going on give people a bit more control over it and do you think teams can build that in like without your assistance do you think teams could build that 
into their practice. It would be really, really helpful. Time is the issue here, so I can hear all my multidisciplinary <laughs> colleagues saying, this is a great idea, Mark, but we just haven't got time to do yeah. it at the moment. And that I have to respect that, and that is absolutely yeah. true. That's not an excuse or anything. Yeah. People are absolutely rushed off their feet in the National Health Service at the moment. As part of my job as a clinical psychologist, I have this thing called supervision. So every six weeks, I sit with one of my colleagues, one of my peers, uh, Roger Graham, who does the same job as I do in the Ulster Hospital, and we sit and we talk. Yeah. And it's incredibly helpful to manage my stress levels, uh, to help me reflect, to make sure I'm not getting pulled out of shape professionally. It's something that our profession, clinical psychology, um, it's a standard values. practice. It's a standard practice, yeah. yeah. Yeah, and I find it very valuable, and I don't think it's unreasonable for me to kind of believe that if other professions had that space, it would be useful too. I think even as well, I have been in teams before in jobs where reflective practice is used as part of a team approach, just 10, 15 minutes as part of a meeting where that's a space, nothing's recorded, nothing. it's space to chat back and forwards. What are you finding difficult? Mm. What case brought mm. something up for you, maybe? Yeah, it does happen. It happens in corridor, they call corridor conversations. Yep. So I know there's corridor coffee conversations. Machine conversations. Coffee machine conversations. It's just formalising those yep. and getting people to sit down and talk and think about it and give them a little bit of time just to process and come up with some ideas. And if people understand, they can take control. And I suppose when you consider then like different levels of support within emotional well-being, and so you're obviously working with people who have maybe more severe distress than the everyday. You mentioned forty percent at the very beginning. There is is it that forty percent that sit with their healthcare professionals who is so just there, a normal So there comes of... a point where with emotional distress, where it becomes something other than everyday normal uh, understandable emotional distress the people i see will by and large also have if you like a, a psychiatrically diagnosable condition yep. like depression or anxiety and sometimes that's related to the, that as a consequence of the of the diabetes that people can become burnt out and depressed and switched off because they're struggling with their type 1 uh, or sometimes people can develop an eating disorder because they've been diagnosed with type 1 so sometimes the, the mental health to... issue is is secondary to diabetes and sometimes it's the other way around yeah. so some so people with mental health issues get diabetes yeah. too so the majority of people i see yes have uh, i don't like the term diagnostic diagnosis but I, I, for the benefit of this podcast a diagnosed condition yeah, diagnosable condition i don't try and use that type of language clinically when people come and see me or other psychologists we yep. we, we talk a lot about formulation and helping people understand their own story and yep. their own issues and where and it comes from and what they can do center, about it. their individual circumstances but very often on the referral letter there will be a diagnostic term like depression or yep. eating disorder or and what about then is there a middle ground there somewhere is there we all know services are busy, there's waiting lists. What happens in that middle ground maybe until somebody gets to you? Is there things that people can do in that? I suppose when you say middle ground, the middle ground I'm thinking of, I suppose, is diabetes distress. Yeah, potentially. Um, so there are other sources of support. If you're struggling living with diabetes, as we've spoken about in previous podcasts, it's really helpful to speak to somebody who gets it. That peer support element. Absolutely. And it's not just healthcare professionals who get it. Yeah. Other people with diabetes get it. And there's an awful lot of peer support available online, in groups. Um, you and I are both familiar with the Our Lives, Our Voices project here in Northern Ireland, which is a fantastic resource for young adults teenagers and young adults with type yep, 1 diabetes to meet other people yep. who, who are managing the same condition. Um, and I suppose maybe it's about healthcare professionals in their role understanding that those services are there 
and understanding, well, if it's not something I can help with or facilitate in practice, where, what is available? Because it doesn't need to be yourself always. Uh-huh. And that, you know, there's that middle ground. It's really helpful if healthcare professionals can be given a directory of uh, support services. I have one in my office, so I can't help with things like debt or employment issues or housing it's not your issues. Field of expertise. But I have a piece of paper and I can say, okay, I can't help you with this, but these are the people who can help you with this. So have a directory of services and knowing what's available locally in the charity sector, in the professional sector is really, really helpful. And if you're working with a condition uh, like diabetes, which impacts on all areas of life, it's really helpful of all healthcare professionals have a directory of options. And I suppose that's up to them to kind of, within their professional capacity, to understand where that line is, where the referral need is, to what they can manage within their practice. And it's tricky. I suppose probably to move on a little bit, um, we hear about kind of motivation to look after diabetes and we've spoken a wee bit before about managing and controlling the support from healthcare professionals to do that. Are there ways that healthcare professionals can support motivation? Whenever I hear that word motivation, there's always two concepts that come to mind. The first is if somebody's going to do something, they have to have a good reason to do it. So... Back in, to the purpose that we've spoke about in, before. In, we talked about previously. So I would I sometimes get healthcare professionals to remind themselves why they do their job. So if I ask a health a group of healthcare professionals, why do you do your job? There's no right or wrong answer to that, but a typical answer would be, for example, I do this job to make a difference. And if that chimes with somebody's own personal values, that becomes a meaningful purpose to them yep. and that gives them great motivation. And that's true of people with diabetes as well, of course. The purpose of looking after diabetes has to be meaningful to them. And sometimes healthcare professionals can lose the purpose of their job. We forget, we ask, why am I doing this? What is the point of this? And sometimes it's really helpful just to sit and think, hang on a minute, the reason I'm doing this is, and to rediscover one's purpose and one's meaning and one's motivation. So conversations about purpose with people with diabetes is really helpful. If you're going to push this rock up to the top of a mountain, what purpose is that going to serve yeah. to you? Why are you doing it? Why after? are you doing it? Yeah. And don't forget why you're doing it. And why is it worth doing over and, and over and over again? why is it worth doing over and over again, yeah. And then the second issue is the issue of control. So we've talked in previous podcasts with type 1 diabetes is that people with type 1 diabetes are given something they don't have full control over to manage. They have some control over capillary blood glucose, but not total control. So helping people recognise the degree of control they have over their condition is really important. So help people recognise or help people with type 1 diabetes not to overestimate how much control they have over their capillary blood glucose. Yeah. Recognise that sometimes capillary blood glucose will be volatile and it will go up and down for reasons beyond the control of the person with type 1 diabetes. Don't take responsibility for things beyond your control. And that's type a very 2 diabetes, thing, easy thing to do. Well, Sometimes. it is, but if you ask health, and then you get healthcare professionals to reflect, I will say, well, do you do that? Do you take responsibility for things beyond your control? And they'll think, and I'll say, do you sometimes feel responsible for when somebody has a high blood sugars? Do you think, oh gosh, I'm not doing my job properly because that person's got high blood sugars? And very often healthcare professionals will say, yeah, no, I do. Mm. I, I kind of take responsibility. We kind of try and think about this a little bit and untangle it. And we'll say, well, where does that sense of responsibility come from? And very often people will say, well, you know, I care. I care about people. And if I don't feel responsible, that means I don't care for them. One of the tricks, it took me 10 years to learn this into my career, that 
responsibility and empathy are two different things so my job is to provide people with empathy to provide people with compassion and a compassionate relationship the responsibility for diabetes rests with the person, person with diabetes they're in, they have responsibility for their diabetes they're responsible for how they manage their diabetes and they're responsible for the consequences of their decisions as well and having that clear in my own head that I can only be responsible for what I have control over. I yeah. don't have control over somebody else's decisions. I yeah. only have control over the quality of the service I provide. That was really helpful to me. So that idea of perceived control, you can get people, healthcare professionals, to reflect on it from the point of view of a person with diabetes, but it's also important for them to reflect on what they have ownership over and what they don't have ownership over. Empathy is a wonderful thing, and empathy works best when you're willing to share somebody else's distress. But sometimes within that empathy, people can take away the ownership of something that belongs to somebody else. It's a blurring of the line it almost. It blurry. Yeah. And that is a lot of stress on healthcare professionals if they feel or if they're made to feel responsible for things they don't have control over. So we all, many healthcare professionals will have inquest fantasies where they Fear they'll be held, stood in front of an inquest, having a finger pointed at them saying, you didn't do your job for properly fear. and now this terrible thing has happened. That we will be held responsible for something yeah. we have no control over. I think I find it interesting that, you know, across all of our three podcasts that we've done, we've talked about control in each of them and for different individuals. And it's a massive thing for everybody. And so it is understanding what control you have and what you don't. Understand what your role is and what it's not or how you can help in this journey, in this scenario, and within this condition. It's just helpful to sit in these podcasts for half an hour and just disentangle some yep. of these complexities and just make clear. Um, so one of the things I would say to healthcare professionals is that when they're going home at night, that they must be very clear what belongs to them, providing high-quality, empathic, compassionate care, decision-making that belongs to them, but the actual condition belongs to the patient. Uh, and those two things are separate. And I suppose it probably leads me on quite nicely to, I was going to ask you, you know, we've talked about supporting people living with diabetes as a healthcare professional, but there's an impact to them emotionally too. How do they support themselves and how do they ensure they're supported by either themselves personally within their own life or by others around them? Healthcare professional resilience. Yeah. Yeah, it's an important issue. Because they're dealing with this day in, day out too. It's a very, very stressful environment to work um, I'm thinking of American soldiers. So uh, American, the American military only acknowledged that it had a problem with PTSD after the second Gulf War. Prior to that, everyone knew they had a problem with PTSD, but they said, no, 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 the reason why lots of our soldiers have got PTSD is because we're very good at diagnosing it. But after the second Gulf War, where all the coalition forces fought alongside each other, it's a perfect experiment. They looked at all the different armies, the Canadians, the Australians, the French, the English, the British, and they found that American soldiers were much more likely to have PTSD than other soldiers. So they were interested to know what was causing this. So they got various different people in. One of them was a man called Martin Seligman, who's a bit of a hero of mine. He's a very eminent psychologist yep. in the States. And he, after thinking about it and analysing it, said, do you know what the problem is? It's how you train your soldiers. You give your soldiers a really, really, really simple set of rules called the, Amer the Code of Honour. Mm -hmm. And because being a soldier is so important to Americans, that Code of Honour becomes their own moral code. It's inculcated into That's somebody their says their values. So the code is really straightforward. You must do this and you mustn't do that. 
makes people really easy to train because it's black and white black and white when you go to war it's not black and white it's really 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 gray so there was a very moving clip on youtube I'm not sure it's still there anymore, but uh, it was of a platoon commander talking about a situation he encountered in Iraq where he came around a corner and he saw a child soldier pointing a gun at his platoon corporal mm-hmm. and he had to make a split-second decision and he shot the child. Whatever he'd have done, he would have violated his code. He was in a no-win situation there. And what they found, that the American soldiers were coming back with traditional trauma, about terror and horror and Mm -hmm. humiliation, but they were also coming back with this form of trauma called moral injury. People coming back from war feeling they violated their own moral code and they're so ashamed. They feel like they failed as a human being. Almost taking on that responsibility element. So we kind of know this in healthcare. We know in healthcare that people work in really, really stressful situations and of course we all have a moral code and a set of expectations for ourselves Um, in the first 10 years of my career when I was stressed the expectations I placed upon myself I actually made them tighter okay I made them tighter I, I made them even more rigid and that was counterproductive and Martin Seligman recognized that he said look if you're going to give people rigid rules they're going to be traumatized because they're not going to be able to keep those rigid rules so you have to train your soldiers differently and the American flexibility the American military he was asked well what was it like you telling that to the the marines to train and he said they were brilliant they were brilliant once they understood what the issue was once they understood what the solution was they just said get it done and they changed exactly what you say they changed the way they trained and it became overcome improvise and adapt that became the mantra cognitive flexibility and it took me 10 years as a psychologist to learn that lesson myself to move away and be more rigid to actually saying to myself you've done a good day's job today you haven't done everything you were going to do hasn't been perfect go home and rest now and back down to maybe the reason why you said as a psychologist to make a difference to remember at the end of a day that there has been somewhere in that day that you have made a difference healthcare professionals are usually people who are very diligent and very conscientious and have very high standards and those qualities have served them well in their career and will continue to do so but when the going gets tough when everyone gets really stressed the trick is to actually soften those expectations rather than harden them Back to maybe we have said before about the being kind to yourself. Same advice to a healthcare professional. You can either say, Do you know what? You've done a good job today, you've done a little bit extra, you haven't been paid for time to go home now. Go home happy. Or you could say, You must answer all your emails before you return to your family. (laughs) No, no, out of office on. (laughs) Mark, I suppose then just to tidy and finish our session today. A bit of a top tip for healthcare professionals who are supporting people living with diabetes and their emotional well being. What's your top tip? Only take responsibility for things you have control over. Okay. And be kind to yourself and be kind to each other. Brilliant. Mark, thank you very much for joining us over the last three episodes. It's been wonderful to have a conversation around emotional well-being, take some time to explore it and delve into some of those bits that we have done. It's often been a topic that people haven't been comfortable to bring up, but highlighting the importance of it and bringing it into everyday conversations across care is how it starts to become embedded and how it is important and considered as important as physical care. Thank you, Susie. Thank you very much. I enjoyed that. Thank you. Thanks for joining us on Let's Talk Diabetes. Remember to rate and subscribe so you never miss an episode. If you want to hear more from Diabetes UK Northern Ireland, follow us on social media at Diabetes UK NI.